0: The
1: way it's done, do it quicker, faster, whatever it is. That's true
0: innovation. How'd they do that? Step number one would be trying. Have you tried? What, what innovation are you talking about? What's the number one priority? What do we have to innovate
2: first? Hi, Mark here, and welcome to the Indifference Podcast. This is where I have conversations with people at the top of their field to understand how they create progress on key issues. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Maria Frankirkov is the technical lead for COVID-19 at the WHO. Maria is a specialist in epidemiology where she studies how infectious diseases emerge and spread around the world and ultimately what we can do to bring them under control. Even if you don't work in healthcare, I guarantee you'll pick up some insights from our conversation that will really help you make progress in your space too. So big thanks to Maria for joining me today and I really hope you enjoy this one.
0: thanks very much for coming on today. I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you.
1: Thanks for having me today.
0: Sure. So I will tell you what, we'll just we'll just kick straight into it because I know you're busy. You've a lot on. So if we just start by asking, you know, what got you interested in uh, global health emergencies?
1: Well, I mean, I was always interested in science uh, as a student, and I became interested in the idea of these viruses that, you know, exist somewhere. And then sometimes they infect people and other times they don't. Sometimes they take off into outbreaks and epidemics and sometimes they don't. And I just, I love the idea of investigating that and the, the detective work around that, you know, which of these viruses are important and why, and, you know, why are some of them so deadly and and others not? Why do some people seem to be more affected than than others? And I love the idea of studying that. So um, there were a lot of outbreaks that were happening around the time of, you know, me in school and thought, wow, I would really love to study something like that. But I didn't know what epidemiology was until I went to college. Um, It wasn't something that was, on my radar uh, as a high school student but i became interested in it uh, when i went to university um, and then it's just you know life happens um experiences and opportunities came my way and i just i just grew, grew from there
0: it's really always interesting how you know, people at the top of our game how, how they how they kind of you know get started and get that first itch that they really have to have to scratch that they you know they just can't get it out of their heads. But your current role with with WHO is, you know, it's really, really interesting, you know, pulling together all that different expertise, all them different insights into some sort of technical guidance that, you know, countries and healthcare workers all over the world can can follow. Um, You know, what is it about that specific job that's, you know, pulling everything together into almost like a real coherent package? What is it about that job that that really uh, will spark your interest?
1: Well, I always, I liked the interface between the academics of it, you know, the real deep understanding of, you know, what is it that this virus is? I mean, at the beginning of any epidemic, at the beginning of any outbreak, you know, you ask a certain number of questions. Um, And these questions are, you know, what is it? What is the pathogen? Is it a virus? Is it something else? Uh, How does it spread or how far has it spread? Uh, Who is most at risk for infection? What disease does it cause and how do we stop it? And I, I love the idea of the study of this and the the rigor of really detailed academic studies and then the messiness of public health and the realities of the real world um, of how we use scientific information and turn that into policy. That interface between study and policy, academics and policy, knowing what it is to knowing how to deal with it really fascinated me. And I love the idea of working between academics and bench scientists with public health professionals dealing with public health, but also the economic aspects of it, the cultural aspects of it, um, and that kind of interface of this multidisciplinary approach to something. So I love that interface between studying something and learning from a textbook point of view to turning it into know-how and into policy. So I think that's what linked me to WHO. And I've always been um, interested in what WHO does at, at a global level. Uh, in turning scientific information into advice and guidance, and helping people around the world.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a pretty amazing good organisation that society as a whole has put together, isn't it? That you know, no matter what's happening in each country, that there there will almost be this kind of shared lessons approach, and that you know, no matter where you are, you can check in on this other kind of global body that's sucking in information from all over the world. But within that, you know, you know, how do you know what to what to focus on?
1: Well, I mean, my area is infectious disease epidemiology, uh, and I'm um, a technical specialist in respiratory pathogens. And so, in my area of work, you know, there are you know those questions that I just mentioned. You know, we do studies and pull pull people together to get answers to those critical questions. One of the one of the powers of WHO, I would say, is this convening power in bringing together scientists and public health professionals from all over the world. And when you have an emerging pathogen, you know something that has very few cases; it's emerged in one country. And maybe it's spread to others, but it's it's very rare at that point. The critical factor that you that is needed is to bring people with the knowledge of that pathogen together. So we have these international networks that we have been convening for decades, um, bring together clinicians, for example, you know who are treating patients in country A, um, and then there are countries. B, C, and D that have similar experiences with different pathogens, but then they talk to one another as clinicians, as medical professionals to say, all right, in this country, I'm seeing this new disease. This is what it looks like. This is what I'm trying to help the patient. This is working. This is not. And then clinicians directly talking to one another to try to help. And that knowledge exchange is, it's so fast. Um, And it's faster than any peer reviewed publication that can come out. And that knowledge exchange is really what kind of accelerates the science and accelerates our understanding to turn that into advice for, for everyone else. Um, but we have these types of international networks all over the place and um, so many different technical disciplines and in infection prevention and control in epidemiology and modeling um, in animal health and animal science um, and in laboratory and virology and bringing together people from all over the world makes the world a lot smaller. Um, and we have an ability to bring people want to to be able to work with us and to help others. Um, and I think honestly, that's one of WHO's superpowers.
0: You know, within that, you know, that particular approach of getting people from you know all over the world, the people who've actually you know had the, the hands-on experience with this new agent that's just emerged. You know, how do you know if, if that approach is working?
1: Well, um, you know, there's a lot of fundamentals to epidemiology that we know work. Um, what we typically do is we think in scenarios. So if we have a really novel pathogen, like we did with COVID-19, we knew that this was a respiratory pathogen right away because of the cluster of pneumonia. Something causing pneumonia means it's causing a respiratory disease. And knowing that type of information gives you clues. Maybe we didn't have exactly, you know, the full genome sequence on day one. We did have that within a few days, but in terms of knowing that it's a respiratory pathogen, we know that there are certain approaches that will work. Um, in terms of surveillance activities and building upon um, surveillance systems that are in country for influenza, for example, or for influenza like illness. We know that certain laboratory tests like PCR assays um, could be rapidly developed with the sequence. And it was, again, within a matter of days. Um, and the approaches that we were seeing being used in China For example, in terms of the control measures, were working in terms of breaking chains of transmission, Um, and then when you use that approach and you see what works, you see a reduction in cases. And so, as the pandemic has gone on, and as outbreaks are going on, you look to see if the the interventions that you are putting in place work in terms of limiting the spread you see if they work in terms of preventing people who are infected from developing severe disease and dying Um, and if they don't work you adapt i mean that's the beauty of what we do is that you you learn from the information that you gather science and public health are not they never stop it's a process so as you're learning information about something new some new pathogen um each day that goes on, you learn something every day about that. And you incorporate that learning into your approach, into your strategies, into your interventions. Um, and then you look at, you evaluate each of those interventions. Are they working or are they not? Uh, if they don't, then you adapt. And so it's an iterative process. There's a there's a constant feedback loop um, to feed back into your strategy. And, and if something is not working, you course correct.
0: And then within that, Maria, as you've, you know, gone through that whole process? know, what have been some of your biggest insights so far?
1: Well, I mean, I think that um, some of the biggest insights of working in emerging and re-emerging diseases that you need to remain open um, and humble to these pathogens, um, you know, they, they always have a way of surprising you. Uh, even if you think you know everything about a pathogen, they always surprise you um, because their goal is to reproduce and to infect as many people as they can. So you have to be uh, humble to the knowledge that you're learning every day. Um, I think that it's important that you're assertive and that you're willing to take risks um, in terms of the approach. Um, You know, WHO has a no regrets policy. And I'm sure you've heard Dr. Mike Ryan uh, say, you know, it's really important to be aggressive and to act fast. That cannot be reiterated enough. You need to act fast with the information that you have. It may not be perfect, it may not be 100% accurate, but you do the best you can with the information that you have. Um, and even if you don't have all the answers, you need to be aggressive and comprehensive. And I think those are the lessons that we continue to learn about these types of novel pathogens. Um, and, and the other thing is that, you know, we're just the fundamentals of epidemiology, of virology, of you know those studies that are done um, at community level with the full engagement of comp- communities, the the power of individuals who are informed, engaged, enabled um, should never be underestimated. Um, we, we learn over and over and over again how important it is to have communities fully engaged, informed, enabled. Um, it's not an afterthought. Um, it's something that needs to be upfront and center in all of our dealings with outbreak response, but, you know, we just need to be assertive. We need to take risks yet remaining humble to, to not knowing it all.
0: Actually, I remember watching that press conference that you know, Mike Ryan gave that speech in that perfection being the enemy of the good. And uh, I think it was February or March. I'm not even if it was February. I don't even think Ireland even confirmed its its first case yet. So you know, I think it's amazing. But a lot of time looking around the world, obviously a lot of public sector organisations, is there is almost this, this fear of failure of you know holding your hands up and saying actually you know maybe there there is a better way here. And it's taking that risk that, you know, when you go down that path, you don't quite know if it's going to work out or if it's going to lead you to a place where everyone wants to go. So, you know, what yeah. are some of your, what are some of the lessons been specifically on that of being able to really get everything and everyone on board so that we're willing to take this chance that this could be a better approach to take?
1: I mean, part of it is learning from each other. Um, you know, we've, we saw several countries in the beginning of this pandemic um, not have quite the right approach. Um, and some countries uh, within days of, of taking um, an alternative approach, turn it around. And use the fundamentals of epidemiology, the the outline strategy that WHO put forth in terms of active case finding, cluster investigations, contact tracing, increased testing, um, supported quarantine, and turn outbreaks that were really devastating around. Um, And that, to me, is not a weakness of saying, we didn't quite get this right, you know, let's look at our approach and let's course correct. To me, that's an incredible strength. Um, we've seen leaders across the world be humbled by outbreaks that are happening in their countries and saying, okay, we need to do something different here. We're gonna, we're gonna do this, we're gonna approach this, and we need everybody's help. To me, that is just such um power um and humility um and strength and leadership, uh, where they've shown us that they can turn these outbreaks around. I mean, so many countries have had devastating outbreaks and have brought transmission under control. Um, you know, as they've let up some of the interventions, they've seen resurgences um, and they're going back and forth between these these periods of restrictive measures and opening up and restrictive measures and opening up. Um, many countries across Asia, across Africa, have shown us that by being strategic in their approach, using the resources that they have, taking this all of you know government, all of society approach um, and being very smart about strategic testing, about outbreak investigation. They've been able to keep transmission at a low level. Um, And so for me, what we do at WHO is try to facilitate the sharing of information, the sharing of knowledge from peer to peer, from leaders to leaders, showing that while we can outline an approach, it's about the implementation Um, at your country level, at the most local level possible, taking into consideration cultural beliefs and religious beliefs and values um, and making it work in your country over and over again. um, We've been so pleased to see how countries have used um, the tools to bring transmission under control. It's really hard. Um, But the humility of saying, okay, maybe we didn't quite get this right. Let's course correct. To me, that's a strength.
0: And is there anything within this, say, the specific groups that, you know, you'd be involved with in WHO? Is there, is there anything here that takes place or that it's done or is said to, to really cultivate that mindset that, look, at any time we are opening to you know, changing course here?
1: Well, we do it ourselves. I mean, we we issue guidance, um, which is based on the best scientific information that we have at the time that we issue the guidance. Um But science evolves. Science grows. Um, More and more studies are are, um, released all the time. And so what we do is through our international expert networks, through our guideline development groups, um, through expert consultations, we take that science and we adapt it into guidance Um, and guidance changes over time. So for us, it's been very difficult in this particular pandemic because there's been so much attention to every single word we say and write, and rightly so. Um, but there's been a politicization of the science and a politicization of um, the response that it's, it's, we stay humble and, and focused and rooted in the science. And as it changes, but some people have thought, you know, well, when you change your guidance, it means you, you were wrong in the beginning. Well, no, it means that you adapt, it means that you grow. And so for us, we use the best information that we have available. And we also look across different disciplines. We don't only look at one discipline um, for a particular topic. Transmission, for example, is a a great example where we have worked with um, clinicians, virologists, epidemiologists, engineers, aerobiologists, um, architects, Um, So many different disciplines across the world to address a relatively would seemingly straightforward question about how does this virus spread. Um, So for us, we just seek information and data, as you say, and we suck it from as many places as we possibly can. But we have a responsibility to distill that into practical advice. Um, and so we are constantly looking at the evidence and the guidance that we have, looking for ways to update it and adapt it as necessary.
0: Yeah, it is really amazing. I think that's been the thing that COVID-19 has, has probably taught us, particularly in the West, where we haven't really you know, had to deal with kind of these uh, coronavirus outbreaks in in, in in the past with SARS and MERS. But uh, I think specifically looking at, you know, the, how transmission takes place, you know, the underlying health of our populations that maybe we've neglected for a long period of time. And you know, really looking at all the different experts it takes to really build a, a healthy uh, society but uh, it's been amazing though i remember looking in january looking at the first technical guidance from who i think it was the 10th of january it was issued and it literally it yeah. covered everything it, everything talking about you no know, yeah. airborne transmission and uh, it, it was still it was amazing for you know, for that early in the game that like, you know there, there was that many lessons from from previous scenarios that had actually you know gone into that but i suppose so moving forward then uh maria You know, what would be your hopes for how we respond to global health emergencies in the future?
1: Well, I mean, I hope I hope we learn from this. I mean, you know, we we the countries that have done that have fared better better uh, during this pandemic are countries that have had experience with other similar situations countries that had direct experience with SARS coronavirus in 2003, who've had direct experience with MERS coronavirus in the Middle East and in Asia, with Ebola and measles and uh, yellow fever and you know infectious diseases. Um, these are the countries that know the fundamentals of public health and having a strong workforce who can carry out community-based interventions, um, can carry out Testing, using strategic approaches. Again, you don't need to have, you know, every test that's available. You don't have to, to test every single one in your population, but you, you need to use your testing um, wisely. And that testing has to be linked to public health action. So the countries that have that muscle memory and have had a trauma based on past outbreaks um, have learned And, you know, one of the things that I'm hopeful for is that despite this horrific year that we have all gone through, the trauma that everyone has gone through will lead to action. We cannot go from, you know, action to neglect to action to neglect to, I mean, we need to use this experience to really build up that workforce of of community workers, of contact tracers, of a trained and protected workforce, Um, And that takes time. So I would like to see that built into our preparedness activities going forward. I would also like us to think through different types of scenarios of the next one, because this will not be the last pandemic that we deal with in our lifetimes. Um, You know, there are. Uh, ideas of you know what the next one will be. Um, there's influenza that circulates every year, and there's always a chance that there could be a novel influenza that could become a pandemic. There could be another novel high threat respiratory pathogen like we've seen with this coronavirus, because there are other coronaviruses that are circulating in animals. Um, it could be an arbovirus. It could be something else. We need to think through the scenarios about what if it's another novel coronavirus. You know, what did we do this time? that can be used for the next one, because there will be a next one. Um, But we will be working with all of our member states through our regional offices and our country offices to make sure that the infrastructure that needs to be in place is in place. And it doesn't matter if you're high income or low income, everyone is affected by viruses that don't respect borders, and especially respiratory pathogens that can spread easily. Um, And it's just really quite really quite critical. I think one of the things you mentioned in our guidance, yeah, our first set of guidance was out on the 10th, 11th, and 12th of January. And that was was built upon the guidance that we had for MERS coronavirus. And so what we did is we quickly used the information that we had um, from the cluster of pneumonia in China, um, looking at the information, how it spread, the diseases that it causes, and we adapted the MERS guidance very, very quickly. Um, that guidance has held relatively strong um, since January. It's been fine-tuned uh, over time, and we've expanded our guidance. We have hundreds of guidance materials out now um, for different settings, and you know, as the pandemic has evolved, there have been different needs. But we use the information we have. We never start from scratch. It's the same thing with the vaccine. Um, the vaccine for for SARS-CoV-2 um, was really started years ago when several different groups were developing um, vaccines for MERS coronavirus um, and quickly adapting that those studies from MERS to SARS. And so we get a head start every time. And I'm hoping that for the next one, our head start is even greater and our work can be even faster.
0: Maria, thanks very much for talking to us today. That's been absolutely fascinating.
1: Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure.
2: Mark here again. Thanks for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and picked up a few insights from it. Be sure to leave us a rating from where you get your podcasts and even better, share it with a friend who you think will enjoy it. Thanks again. And I hope you tune in next week.